Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Thomas Worthland McConkie, welcome to Mormon Discussion. How are you today? Hey, I'm wonderful. Thanks, Phil. Thank you for having me. Excellent. I'm so glad to have you. Um, I think for the most part, I interview people. I think most people out there in Mormonism know who the individuals are that I'm interviewing. You're kind of a, a fresh face on the scene, <laughs> and I'm really excited to have you on, uh, uh, Thomas. You just wrote a book recently titled Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, and uh, – I've picked up the book as soon as I saw it. I actually picked up the book and started reading it before you and I ever talked about having an interview. Yeah. It, it was once I was about 15 pages in, I said, I've got to have this guy on the podcast. Would, uh, would you mind starting off just for those listeners who are not aware of, uh, of who you are, uh, share maybe just a brief bio about yourself and then we'll jump into some questions. Yeah. I was born in Salt Lake City. Um, it's funny, you know, I am the new face and yet a lot of people know a lot of my relatives. So that's an interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. You come from good stock. I can tell well, just by the name. Not, right? not everybody thinks so, but I, uh, people know who the families are. Um, I was born in Salt Lake City. I was raised in a very devout Mormon family and, you know, just encountered a lot of difficulties in the culture early on. Uh, I, I talk about this in the book, but, I stopped going to church when I was uh, in early adolescence, about 13. And, you know, from there, uh, traveled all over the world and just had an interesting faith journey, as many of us do. And it was in my late 20s where I, you know, started to reflect back on, you know, how I was raised and where I was from. And, you know, as I came more into the, the core of who I was, as I was you know, kind of coming into a deeper understanding of what I cared about most, what mattered most to me. I, I just started to awaken to the Mormon vision, not in the sense of, uh, you know, uh, a pious um, a parochial view of Mormonism, uh, but, you know, rather just the, how meaningful it was to me from the inside out. And I started to make sense of that journey primarily through the lens of uh, adult development so you asked me where I went to school. I, I actually uh, went to school. I ended up graduating from the University of Utah. I studied English literature, um, but I also did uh, uh, post-grad work in um, Spain and mainland China. So I studied all over the world as well. And maybe I'll just leave it at that for the moment, and we can see what that opens up. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. I will ask the one family question, which, you know, you know Thomas Worthland McConkie. So yeah. I'm thinking in my head of Elder Bruce R. McConkie, uh, which also goes back to Joseph Fielding Smith and that whole line. Yeah, that's And right. then on the other side, you've got Joseph B. Worthland, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, my granddad is Oscar. He's the one who... Uh, started the law firm for the church downtown that a lot of people know about. And that's Bruce's younger brother. So Bruce is my great uncle. 
And, uh, Joseph Worthland is my grandfather. He's my mother's father. Yeah. So those are the relationships there. So as I'm sitting here plugging in my head, <laughs> the stereotypes that we form about people yeah. and the way we think yeah. of people, right? <laughs> yeah. Elder McConkie on one hand and his, and his father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, very, very rigid about some things, very dogmatic. On the other hand, when, when I think of Joseph B. Worthlin, yeah. I think of someone who is setting aside all the, all the messiness of, of having lines in the sand, all the messiness of having, um, certain teachings that are rigid or dogmatic. And he just seems to just kind of want to just tell you how much he loves you and try to just push for you to just, just to try harder and be more like Christ. It, it seems like there is this, dichotomy between those two kinds of personalities. Um, How's that affected you growing up having both sides of that as you've kind of uh, explored Mormonism early on in your, in your youth? Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, spot on uh, with my granddad Worthland, he was always just such a loving supportive presence in my life. And I just, from a really young age, admired the way that he served in the church. It was really a beautiful thing. Uh, to witness. And, you know, it was a real gift for me to have a close relationship with them my whole life. Um, and, you know, something I'd like to say about, uh, you know, Bruce, Bruce, um, Bruce gets a bad rap. And uh, I would say it's not all undeserved. But something we might cover tonight in a more developmental context is that, you know, Bruce drawing certain lines in the sand and taking hard stances on doctrinal issues that was really hard for me growing up. I mean, that it was challenging for me. I experienced that as unnecessarily rigid and dogmatic, as you described it. And yet, um, as I'm metabolizing that and as I'm get, just starting to appreciate more of uh, who Bruce was and who many of us are in the church who uh, kind of gravitate towards that position more, uh, there's a real function for it. It really does serve a purpose, you know, for our community of faith. And, uh, I, I'd maybe like to touch on that a little bit later, but, they, but you're right. They are very different kinds of Mormonism. And that's one thing I love about, you know, discussing development. That's, that's the whole conversation that there are very different kinds of Mormonism. There are different relationships that we can come into with Mormonism and development. You know, for me, it, it helps us kind of see the patterns and, you know, rather than moving to judgments about, Oh, I can't believe this person is this way. Why can't they be more that way? I feel like development helps us take each other more on our own terms. You know, what we find to be a natural fit to us. So it, you know, it's interesting to grow up with such, um, you know, divergent Mormon, uh, practices in my own family, you know, mother and father, Worthland and McConkie, they're almost as different as they can be in a sense. And I just appreciate the way they hang together. Right, right. Let's jump a little bit into the book, uh, just kind of a surface thing first, which is the artwork. Uh, I just, if anybody's seen this book on Facebook, I think it's been shared quite a bit lately. There's been a lot of conversation about it. I think the first thing somebody's going to notice is this very unique artwork. And as you and I were talking off the air before the interview started, yeah. I feel in some ways the artwork, the moment I saw it, I knew what the topic was. It's almost like this artwork really was inspired and, and really speaks to the subject you cover. Who did the artwork and, and how about, how did you come about uh, arranging for those pieces to, to make it into the book? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. Um, I mean, funny story about that. 
really, you know, this book started off as just, you know, me scribbling on a, on a legal pad. And, um, you know, I, uh, banged out a few pages on my MacBook. And then, it, you know, the essay became a long essay. And then the long essay became a sprawling essay. And then, you know, my girlfriend, Gloria Pack, uh, who is the illustrator, she just tried her hand at like really, you know, putting imagery to the content. And once I saw it, I just thought, oh man, this, we have got to share this. I mean, it wasn't until she illustrated my essay that I thought this is really something we should share. And that's really what gave birth to the book. <laughs> yeah. She, she nailed it. I think it uh, yeah. fits so perfectly with what you've covered. Yeah. I mean, I, I was saying, you know, by the time she finished with the design of the book, I hope my writing can live up to the illustrations. <laughs> so it, it did. I think, I think both of them go hand in hand and did really well. I, uh, I want to start you in the very beginning of the book, you talk about this idea of a GPS or losing a map and you're trying to paint a picture for people who really need to come to grips with what this feels like, what it is like to kind of enter this stage that we'll call a faith crisis. Um, maybe share with the listeners a little bit about that analogy and, and whatever thoughts you've got on it as, uh, as you put that together. Yeah. I mean, the, the basic metaphor of uh, the map that I extend throughout the book it's it's a metaphor for the mind, you know, and when we talk about human development, we're really talking about how an individual makes sense of the world, makes meaning out of life. And, you know, some territory feels very familiar, um, whereas other territory feels very dangerous. It feels very foreign. You know, if you look at the old maps, um, you know, from centuries ago, uh, you know, they would write, there be dragons out in the, you know, uncharted waters. And, uh, you know, it's similar in our own psyche. Um, there are places where we just feel comfortable and safe, and there are other places where we feel really stretched thin and lost. And I see that pattern in life. I see it in Mormonism. I see it as people are kind of wearing out, you know, their former worlds where things used to make sense, things used to give them juice. And then all at once, you know, it, it falls a little bit flat, you know, so I'm mixing metaphors here. But when we return to the map, it's it's a, it, it's just trying to, you know, share with the reader this insight that, you know, maybe the breakdown of a former faith is giving giving way to a deeper insight and a deeper way of coming into relationship of whatever you hold to be divine or ultimate. So, uh, you know. My position is really optimistic, <laughs> and, and that is that, you know, faith crisis, it represents a natural cycle, you know, the same way, you know, a, a snake sloughs its skin or the same way an acorn has to break open its shell in order to germinate and grow into a mighty oak tree. Uh, you know, we we shed our faith. We, we die to our faith, and that can happen through an intense process of doubt. And, you know, sure enough, if we stay with the process, we find something deeper than we could have imagined arising out of, you know, those ashes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There were several times in the book where I'm writing down on the pages, this is how I felt or this is what I need to work on. Uh, there were several parts in the book and the first one that that happens with is the part where you say, look, it's like, it's like, you know, you start off on this trip and you, you go a little while without seeing a sign and, yeah. and you don't have a map, you don't have GPS, you don't know yeah. if you're going the right way. That's me to a T. There are times where I'm driving down the highway, Tom, and, um, I don't see 
any sign for 10 minutes and I just think in my head like, uh oh, what if I wasn't paying close enough attention and I got off on the wrong track and I'm heading down the wrong road? And I think it's that feeling that you hit on, which is just perfect. That's exactly what it feels like. And, and I was thinking about this tension that you talk about throughout the book and we'll get into some of this. I think the tension really at the heart of it, we call it a faith crisis, which means something bad has happened. Something, something has gone wrong. We've lost something. But I think that's because, that's because religion in general paints a picture that when you start to change, it's seen as falling away or losing your way. Whereas as you talk about, it doesn't have to be that. It can be an opportunity to actually grow in faith and to grow in, in spirituality and to grow in closeness to the divine, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's one of the, um, uh, overarching messages of the book that, uh, we send each other signals, you know, from within the Mormon culture and not, we're talking about Mormon culture here. This is, this is humanity. You go to any place in the world, any, any culture and they have their own stories and they have their own boundaries of what they say is appropriate and what is inappropriate, what's acceptable experience and behavior and what's not. So I want to be clear that I'm talking about Mormonism because it's a subject uh, and a faith that's near and dear to me, but we could, I mean, we're, we're talking about the human experience here. Uh, but, but what I wanted to say is that, you know, within this cultural context, we send messages to each other that it's okay to feel a certain way. And when you feel another way, that means you're in the danger zone. And what I suggest in the book is that what we call the danger zone, that might just be growth. <laughs> straight up, right? Not always. I mean, I'm not suggesting that every faith crisis amounts to a developmental shift and we just need to let it rip. I mean, there, it's more complicated than that, but it, it's my sense that development uh, as a tool, as a framework can give us tremendous insight and freedom around this growth process, you know? And uh, to use a relevant example, my, my parents named me after Thomas Monson. I, I loved President Monson. And um, he said in the last conference that, you know, faith and doubt cannot coexist. They cannot exist in the same space. Therefore, the implication is that we need to choose faith. And for me, that's that's a great example of a very well-meaning uh, comment from a leader that actually serves a lot of the LDS community. And then there are those who came to me after and they're like, you know, the president said this and I love President Monson and I feel like I have faith and doubt, right? It's a classical example where, you know, as we hold our faith and our relationship to Mormonism in more nuanced ways, many of us experience faith and doubt all the time. And I, and I try to illuminate that territory a little bit so that people don't have that feeling you were describing a moment ago where, you know, they don't see a road sign for 10 minutes or they start to feel some doubt. And they've been told, "Ooh, if you're feeling doubt, you're on the wrong road, you're going down the wrong path. I think that's that's true from a certain perspective. But from another perspective, doubt is just the beginning of the blossoming of a deeper understanding of what the gospel's pointing us to. Yeah, I think that um, often when religion tries to put things into dichotomies, that faith and doubt are two polar opposites, and if you have one, then you're 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 without the other. I think sometimes that magnifies the problem because people then feel like, as you're pointing out, that this is this is something really bad and icky, and and there's really no room to kind of work within that. And and as you point out throughout the book. 
it's those folks who go through trials, who have doubts and still persist forward. And I don't mean this to demean anybody who's not in this place yet, but, but that, that is real faith at work, right? I mean, the faith is the evidence of the uh, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of which not seen. It's, it's to press on in spite of having deep questions that, that perhaps what you believe in that there's, there's reason to say, maybe this isn't true. Maybe this isn't work out. Maybe this isn't right. And yet you still press forward with hope that it is. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you said that, Bill. Um, you know, for me, you use the term real faith. I mean, ultimately it's all real faith and, you know, we hold the faith that we can and we're always growing into, uh, you know, deeper and more mature, uh, kinds of faith. But, but you're right. I mean, some people, um, you know, tend to be quite well adjusted throughout their lives and that's great. You know, like I'm, I'm not, I'm not here to stir the pot with them, but in my own anecdotal experience, I see a lot of people around me who are really struggling with these tensions that you're pointing to. And I, I know, you know, whether we're talking about church leadership, whether we're talking about just, you know, regular church goers like me and you or people who have stopped going to church, I think we want to find a way to make room for everybody there and provide a place where we can all continue to develop and grow. And we're, we're learning how to do that. You know, and I, I hope this book is a contribution to that effort. Yeah, and I hope that tonight we can kind of cover some of the space. The the first kind of section I want to kind of talk about, and I'm going to jump around through the book here, and I want to read a few things that you wrote and and get your thoughts. Maybe maybe push you a little further on some of these and and get you to expound on them. But the first kind of idea is how others react to those of us in the church or within religion or within the world in general that that kind of go through these transitions and some of the resistance we meet. And so on page 74 of your book, you've got a couple of really good quotes I've got underlined. The first one, it says, the cultural reinforcement of faith and negative reinforcement of doubt can drive the achiever. And, and, and I should probably stop here. You put people kind of into five different groups, I believe, right? It's five different kind of labels and, and you preface it with the idea that nobody's ever in any just one spot and we're all kind of fluid through these, but, but that there is a progressive pattern through them. And one of them you label is the achiever. And, and I don't want to go into a bunch of detail of each one. I'm hoping people will pick up the book and read it and find that out, uh, what each of these are. But essentially just to say the achiever seems to be this kind of stage that people get at where they begin to recognize that things just don't fit the way they used to. And you talk about this idea that uh, the negative reinforcement of doubt can drive the achiever further away from the church. I think most members who are trying to get those who have doubts to just get in line and have more faith and pray harder and just read your scriptures, I don't think they realize that that really has the opposite effect of what they want to occur. Maybe speak for a moment of why this type of treatment, this type of medicine really is adverse for the person who's struggling? Yeah, that's an awesome question. I'm glad you bring up that quote. I, I think so many of us, um, you know, in the modern day church have that experience where, you know, we have faith. We have a sense of, you know, what's good and true in our lives, what's edifying. And yet, you know, uh, we learn about a piece of church history or we have a certain um, encounter with a church leader that leaves us wondering, well, what's this all about? What, of the, what, what part of this is divine and what part of this is the fallibility of men and women for that matter? Right. You know, we all 
we all grapple with that. And uh, what I meant to suggest in the book is that uh, it's nourishing at certain stages of development to really hold doubt honestly, to, to not, you know, wiggle and squirm and try to escape from it, uh, to not soothe or coax ourselves out of thinking it and, you know, perish the thought that anything should be wrong with my culture, my tradition, but to actually really just meet it honestly. And it's, it's at a, there's a specific stage that you named, um, where, you know, we really can't quite live with ourselves anymore unless we're willing to confront some of the contradictions. And so, like you said, I mean, I think you nailed it. Um, uh, other people who maybe have a different orientation that's, you know, less um, amenable to doubt, you know, they'll, they'll have the best of intentions and, you know, try to help people just forget about it. And really for at a certain place in development, we we not only can't forget about it, but not engaging it, honestly, actually stunts our spiritual growth. So something I, I really try to hit again and again in the book is that, like, you know, people want to grow. I believe we're, we're deeply uh, to, to say the term hardwired is a bit crude. I, I, I believe it's in our nature to want to just transcend ourselves and grow and develop in wisdom and love and compassion and stewardship. And, you know, when we tell these people, you know, like enough with your doubting, they can interpret that as like you're actually attacking the best part of me that's trying to grow and develop. Amen. And it does feel like that. And I get emails every week from listeners of the podcast who their main appreciation for me doing the podcast or people like you writing a book like this is that you're, you're giving voice to the validity of asking questions, of thinking they, these things through, of, of, of wanting to, to know how these things fit together and always being stunted as, as you mentioned, that there's so few avenues that validate that, that when they're out there, people gravitate towards them. And I think that's a big reason why I'm seeing your name in this book all over social media for the last uh, two or three weeks. <laughs> I uh, The other quote you have on the same page, you say, over time, and this is obviously the achiever, and as they're, as they're beginning to think this way, over time they come to make decisions about what elements of the tradition are critical to them and what aspects they can leave in the back. <laughs> yes, in I the love background. this. Yeah, yep. absolutely. <laughs> Those who don't understand this process may dismiss it as buffet Mormonism, but to the achiever it becomes vital to be able to pick and choose. I have so often, Thomas, been <laughs> criticized for being a cafeteria Mormon. Yeah. And, yeah. and yet, I don't think those people who make that criticism realize the importance to people like you and me and those who have doubts and those who are struggling. If we're going to be able to put it back together, we have to be given permission to do it in our own way. Absolutely. Yeah. Your thoughts on that? No, I, I, I mean, I, amen, brother. I love what you're saying. Um, I, I love this example. I mean, we could talk. Um, I hang out with a lot of theory heads in my line of work and we talk development, um, you know, in very rarefied space. But I love to ground it in examples like this, right? Like the term buffet Mormonism, like where did it come from and who's calling who that term and why? And, and, you know, as, as this uh, passage in the book suggests, uh, choice, like the ability to pick and choose according to our own values you know, what we hold to be uh, important in our lives, 
to, and to be able to leave other aspects of our tradition behind, that's part of the way we grow up. That's part of the way we spiritually develop. And for people who, um, you know, in their development, they express their faith by aligning with the tradition and taking it all in and really putting themselves under the rule of the tradition and doing it all to the letter. That's actually a really powerful modality of growth at other stages. So that's wonderful. But what I'm concerned about is people who are, you know, they're exhibiting genuine spiritual and psychological growth and they're getting called bad names for it in church culture. And it makes them not want to hang out with us. It makes them not want to stick around. And I try to provide a developmental context that says, you know, when you see someone picking and choosing, be grateful that they're picking and choosing. You know, be grateful that they, you know, they pick some things that are truly meaningful to them. That's that is their uh that is their relationship with Mormonism, and it, it's a sacred thing. Right. Would you would you rather they pick and choose what is of value to them and they stay, or would you rather draw the line in the sand and say you have to eat it all, and if you can't, you have to go? And I don't think any of us want people to leave the church, and yet sometimes by pushing people to fit in that box that we've said in our minds, this is Mormonism, we cause people to to say, well, that just doesn't work for me. I guess I'm out of here. Totally. No, I agree. I mean, really, uh, strictly speaking, none of us can, you know, sign up for Mormonism, uh, lock, stock and barrel, right? I mean, we're all picking and choosing on some level, but at a particular stage of development that I talk about in the book, that becomes actually pretty critical to our growth. Yeah. And we do have to pick and choose because, because, Mormonism is a paradox. Mormonism contradicts Mormonism. We we have leaders who say the earth is 6,000 years old. We have other leaders who have said, yeah, it's okay being billions of years old. We have we have leaders who uh, mm. have said evolution is uh, is a heresy. And we've had other people say uh, yeah. evolution is perfectly comfortable within their framework. And these are all prophets, seers, and revelators. So Absolutely. I think we have to come to grips that we're all cafeteria Mormons. We're all buffet Mormons, right? Yeah, uh, or, yeah and even beyond that, that we're all – you know, in, in psychological terms, we're all constructing our own world. We're all, uh, coming into relationship with the world according to our, you know, stages of development. And what I'd like to say, I, you know, I, I try to do this every time I engage people in a conversation around development. Um, I just want to out myself and be transparent that I'm, I do the same thing, right? It's not as though I can stand outside or beyond the developmental spectrum and, you know, offer an objective view of it. I, I try to make transparent in the book that I'm coming from my own stages and that colors my understanding of development. It c- colors my understanding of Mormonism and I'm just as vulnerable to this stuff as anybody. And, you know, what I, advocate for in the book is that we acknowledge that we're vulnerable. We acknowledge that we're making the best meaning we know how to and to cut each other some slack, you know, to make meaning in a way that, you know, really feels good according to our own conscience. Right, right. On uh, on page 82, kind of talking again about how there's react, uh, you've got a quote in there. You say, I might point out here the tendency in Mormon culture to privilege faith over doubt to encourage those struggling with doubt to focus more intently on faith. From the vantage point of the achiever, this counsel can represent a kind of backslide. Life at achiever is complex. Black and white answers feel too simplistic. There is legitimate doubt to contend with here. They are certain of it. Moreover, the achiever knows that when engaged honestly, doubt can lead to more expressions of faith. I I just want to hit on 
kind of the closing sentence there, which is just to make room. I guess my hope is that of the 15,000 listeners who listen to this podcast, the majority of them are people that are in this transition who are trying to find ways to stay connected to Mormonism, but also need to deal with their questions face to face. And I think my, I think what's going to happen is those listeners are going to point this podcast, hopefully back to family and friends and say, look, this, this might help you better understand me. Um, could you maybe speak for a moment about how the achiever, when, when he, and again, we're not using this achiever term in the sense that this is the guy who achieves everything, rather that his focus is on pressing forward through questions and being more critical thinking, that this achiever, that when he engages questions, when he tackles his doubt and is allowed to do so, that there really is room for growth and it's a lot more healthy paradigm than when he's pushed back to quit asking these questions. Yeah. Once again, Bill, well said. Um, In a sense, you know, this passage you've brought up, it's, it's echoing the the prior passage on the achiever and and just for the listeners here, you know, the achiever stage, it's a, it's a common stage in adult development. You know, when we look at our research protocols, um, uh, nearly the majority of adults who take this protocol score somewhere with, you know, a center of gravity, a cluster of data within this area. So I imagine it's, uh, it's a worldview that's quite familiar to many of the listeners on this podcast. Um, I, I just wanted to give people a little bit of orientation around that. And, and like you said, um, it comes, it comes down to allowing for a little more complexity. And historically, Mormonism, we're, we're a young faith. We're a developing community. And it's, as far as I can tell, um, it's right in step with our development as a community that we've, we've held things in a little bit more simplistic terms. Here we are coming back to, you know, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. Um, you know, for people who hold Mormonism with more complexity than Bruce seemed to have, I think it's important to recognize that, you know, to hold things with simplicity and put some basic structure around the faith as a developmental step and phase that can actually be healthy for kind of solidifying our identity as a religious people. Right. But then, you know, once we have an adequate amount of structure to hold us and say, this is what the Mormon church is. This is how we define ourselves and understand ourselves. Well, then that that structure actually allows room for more flow, more play, more creativity, more nuance. Right. So it's it's a really interesting dialectic. It's an interesting polarity that's dancing here where we need structure. We need to draw lines in the sand in order to participate in religion in the first place. But if we have too much structure and we're too rigid, we start to deny the insights that are bubbling up in all of the members, which is so apparent right now, you know, in contemporary Mormonism, that people really do have more room for complexity. And I think there are some vestiges from the past in Mormon culture that are kind of discouraging that. But it's my hope that we can just relax into the growth process together and recognize just what you're pointing to, Bill, that, you know, there's there's room for that nuance. There's room to play. Yeah. In fact, um, I always argue with people, and I don't mean argue as in screaming and yelling, but just making the argument that Mormonism really is deep and there really is a lot of room for variation of opinions, even though we've kind of grown up on this 
this kind of standard of what Mormonism is, I think when we start digging into leaders' quotes and we start, you know, flirting around the edges of the theology and thinking about where these kinds of ideas lead, I think Mormonism is as expansive and as rich and as deep and as flexible as any faith that's out there. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I sing songs of joy when I hear you say that, Bill, because I, I've found that to be the case too. Mormonism, in terms of its end game, is as big as infinity and eternity themselves, right? But when we, when we, you know, impose cultural boundaries around it, which, which we need to, right? Which is expedient, which helps us practice. Um, it, we can create the impression that Mormonism is quite small and certainly a lot of us, you know, listening right now. Um, we've had the experience of Mormonism being very constricting, very small, but, um, like you said, the, the depths of Mormonism, there's, there, there are unsearchable depths, you know, to quote Paul from the New Testament. Yeah. I, I had a really hard time, just so the listeners know, I sent, I sent you probably three pages worth of thoughts and ideas and page numbers. I guess what my point is, is that as I'm going through the book here and we're sharing some quotes and some thoughts from it, I don't want the listener to get the feeling like I've just shared all the best stuff from the book. The reality is I think you and I could sit here and I could talk about this book for six or seven hours and and still not feel like I'm hitting every piece. So I really want the listeners. Again, we're talking with uh, Thomas Worthland McConkie, author of Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis. And um, on that same page, page 82, this quote I just – this to me is just amazing. It says, the culture of scapegoating doubters can be alienating to those – at this developmental stage, and there are many in our congregations. At Achiever, our developmental instincts call us to a deeper reckoning with ourselves and what we hold to be true. We start to build momentum of faith. It's a kind of fearlessness where we're willing to encounter almost anything in the name of our search. Wherever the path may take us, those who warn the Achiever against such a search can start to sound like the opposition itself. And and I just want to ask you, because it feels like I think the brethren are starting to pick up on this, because it, it felt like in years past that what we were always told was kind of, you know, don't go looking on the Internet. Uh, there's danger there. And I think more and more we're starting to hear messages of questions are okay. Uh, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't demean or belittle the doubter. Uh, they're not less than the, the rhetoric. While I still don't feel like it's really healthy yet, I think it is starting to shift. Are you feeling that same way? Oh, absolutely. And, uh, yes, just echoing your comment from a moment ago that this conversation could go on for years, right? I mean, we can just barely scratch the surface with it, but you bring up another fascinating area of development, which is, you know, we as individuals grow, we develop, but so do the collectives we form. So does the Mormon community as a group of people. We express our development through a group. And there tends, there's, you know, as Jane Lovinger, the researcher, to my knowledge, who originally kind of, you know, teased this out, but that groups tend to lag behind individual development. And there are really fascinating reasons for that. But, you know, for brevity's sake, I'll just say that, you know, many Mormons can have the experience that, well, I already knew that. I already received that personal revelation. Why does it take the church 20 years to figure out what I knew 20 years ago? And, you know, there's actually a developmental basis for that, that it, it just takes an institution longer to develop, to evolve, and to, you know, internalize these developmental patterns. So 
my hope is that, you know, those who have had genuine insights, those people who are growing in beautiful ways and expressing Mormonism in ways that we've never seen before, that they have the patience and the humility to stick around and, and serve because it, my, my sense is that it really is an institution, an organization, a faith worth serving. That's where I'm placing my bet. <laughs> right, right. No, and I'm with you. Uh, page 33, you make this comment and I think, I think what you're hitting on, well, there's lots of directions we can go in, but at least one of them I think is this idea of how we interpret scripture, for instance. And the quote there is a central premise in the study of adult development is that meaning making is an essential function of all human beings. The patterns we draw on to make meaning evolve over time in sequential and hierarchical unfolding. Put simply, meaning develops through stages. And, and what I would simply ask you here is maybe your thoughts on how important it is if, if you're in a war, let's say you're a bishop, let's say you're maybe a, maybe a parent or uh, a sibling of a person who is going through this faith transition. They're, they're having a hard time. They're questioning essentially everything. How important it is, is it to give those folks room to begin to maybe even, you know, see certain stories in the scriptures figuratively to perhaps define the word scripture slightly different than the average Latter-day Saint would to, um, be able to kind of interpret laws or command. And I'm not saying that we say, let's just, you know, it's a free for all. Let's break all the rules. Mm. Let these guys do whatever they want. Yeah. But I am arguing that, and I want to get your thoughts on making enough room that they can, they can begin to interpret things in and make their way through this different than perhaps that bishop, that parent, that sibling the way they want that person to do it. Does that make sense? It makes sense. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's a question that I'm trying to hold really deeply right now too. I mean, my intention is to, as I say in the book, just provide a simple map. I, I'm not in a place obviously where I can prescribe, Hey guys, here's how we should practice Mormonism and here's how we should engage, uh, the ordained women movement. I, I don't know, but I, my, my sense is that if we have a good map, if we have a sense of, oh, this is how humans develop. And at this stage, we tend to be very rule oriented and obedience is really important. And oh, when I get to this stage, um, obedience kind of gets backgrounded and I start to care a lot more about personal choice and, you know, my own individuality. And if we just see these patterns unfolding and the ways people make meaning, uh, what I've seen um, in the work I do in research and, you know, just hands-on training in adult development, what I see is that people tend to develop much more compassion towards themselves for just being as they are and having a human experience. And also simultaneously starting to see these patterns of development in others and being more gentle with those patterns and really giving people the room they need to explore their own developmental terrain. So, you know, I love it. Terry O'Fallon, my colleague, who's really one of the pioneers right now in this uh, field of research, she calls, uh, she refers to the stages of development as the spectrum of compassion. And she calls it the spectrum of compassion for the reasons I was just pointing to, that if we can really understand, you know, the, you know, the, the contours of how people grow and what they need, at a given stage of growth, we can actually have compassion for them and and serve them, be of service in that growth process. And it, it's so gorgeous. Mormonism is such a gorgeous 
patterning and path of spiritual growth and development. And I think my sense is we're just beginning to see the possibilities of, you know, what kind of growth is available to us, um, you know, through the spirit, through inspiration, you know, through the divine gifts that are made available to us. Yeah, yeah, and I love how you line up this idea that, you know, the book, and I think you hit it on the head, you, you really don't, at any turn in this book, uh, begin to get on your soapbox and say, this is, this is what we have to do. This is the direction we have to go on this issue or that issue. <laughs> you really do just provide a map. Um, and I, and I really love that because I think then everybody can kind of come to the table on something like this and, and not feel like the other side's trying to win them over on a certain issue or a certain, uh, a certain paradigm within the church. Uh, and so I appreciate that. You, you talked on page 27 of this idea of the moment you begin to recognize that whereas you used to call it a faith crisis, now you're calling it a faith transition. And that really is an important marker for the individual to see that they are beginning to enter perhaps a more healthy phase of this development. Um, when I read that, it made me think I can almost tell you the exact day that I stopped using the word faith crisis and started using the word faith transition more. And, uh, and I think you hit on a very important point. I think what I want maybe to talk about here is to help the listener who's really in that dark night of the soul, maybe just explain to them that if they just keep pressing forward, keep, keep asking questions, keep pushing ahead, that there really is a light at the end of the tunnel in terms of coming out the other side and having a healthier space where there isn't as much anxiety or depression or anger, uh, those kinds of feelings. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I love that question, Bill. Um, and it's, uh, yeah, as you ask it, it's, it's a really sobering question for me because I've had multiple dark nights of the soul in my own life. Um, as, as you probably have and, you know, many of the listeners and, uh, it's, it's such a lonely and desperate place to be. Um, you know, what comes up for me when you ask that question is that, you know, we can, what I've found to be true. And I think what the, uh, the exercise, the discipline of development shows us is that when we feel like we're just absolutely falling apart, when, you know, everything that we pegged our identity to and, you know, put all of our hope into in this human life just seems to be crumbling and breaking off that there's, there's a real grace in that, you know, maybe, maybe a fierce grace, you know, not a particularly pleasant experience, but um, I'm reminded my granddad Worthen often spoke about the uh, law of compensation, you know, that the, uh, the Lord compensates those who are faithful and it's it's my experience that we are deeply compensated and you know what is lost is restored tenfold and that is such an inspiring aspect of development to me that however precious you hold a current way of being a current belief system a current worldview you can't imagine losing it and then one day you've lost it that you can have faith in that process and that um you can rest assured that something even more beautiful and expansive is on the way. Yeah. And I want to talk, I want to talk about how maybe the church or we as members can help make that journey easier for those who are in what we're calling this dark night of the soul or this, 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 you know, this moment when you, 
when you really don't have a clue what is going on, your foundation is kind of ripped out from underneath you. And, and it's, this is the moment where these, these folks I think are the most fragile in terms of perhaps losing them out of the church because, and of course you're well aware of this, I'm sure, but within Mormonism, especially when people go down this path of, of losing essentially faith in everything that they trusted in, Mm. uh, a lot of Mormons just let go of everything and they let go of God and, and they end up becoming essentially atheist or agnostic with very little, uh, hope that there's something divine out there. And I think that happens within Mormonism even more so than other denominations within Christianity. Um, I want to talk for a moment about how maybe we can help make a space where that doesn't happen. I know we've been hitting on these ideas tenfold already, but you have a quote on, um, page 30 of your book and I've got, I've got arrows pointing at it saying the word amen. I've got other arrows pointing at it and saying this, uh, <laughs> you, you write, you write paradoxically, uh, faith needs doubt in order to grow. Doubt helps to reshape and refine our beliefs, opening us to transcendent faith, the absolute how do we account for our history as Mormons, oh, especially yeah. <laughs> the unflattering aspects? Yeah. How will we more fully welcome those into our church who feel marginalized? How do we untangle human fallibility from true revelation? Some part or all of us may wish for these quandaries to be spirited away. We may long for a return to simple answers, but our faith cannot mature without these growing pains. Uh, talk for a moment how important is it for the doubter to be allowed to live in nuance in complexity and paradox and i and i get it it will make it will make those in an earlier stage very uncomfortable yeah and yet and yet i'm going to certainly put a stake in the ground and i know you will too that there has to be space for that kind of nuance for us to be able to go through these growing pains as you put it yeah, awesome. Well, yeah, I hear a number of questions in there. The, the first thing that comes up for me is, you know, we've been talking about faith. We've been talking about faith crisis. And, you know, in the quote from the book you just read, I make the distinction between faith that I write with a small f, and then I talk about transcendent faith, which I write with a capital F. And, you know, in answer to what do we do about making room for people that are really engaging this spiritual falling apart and putting back together again, then falling apart and putting back together again? Well, in terms of small faith, um, I, I look at, you know, the small F faith as just the meaning we make out of life. You know, this whole deal going on right now around us. And we develop certain beliefs around that and we develop certain thought patterns and feeling patterns. And um, as we've all experienced, those are replaceable and those are um, expendable. They, they have a they have a, a, a limited lifespan. Right. So doubt comes along and starts to mulch, make mulch of these, you know, prized beliefs. And all of a sudden we find ourselves totally disoriented. Um, the process I'm pointing to is that transcendent faith captures that entire process, not just faith, but even doubt 
that's mulching our beliefs, you know, that's eroding away at these beliefs that we've outworn. It's actually making room for a greater faith to come forward. So as I define it in the book, transcendent faith, it's just, it's, it's the, it's the mystery of the divine. It's the unnameable grace that brings us into deeper and deeper companionship with it. And, you know, hopefully all of our beliefs are changing all the time. Hopefully our belief systems are becoming more polished, more refined, more nuanced. I think that's happening to all of us, whether we would say we're having a faith crisis or not. You know, I, I just my sense is that that's part of the natural growth cycle and maturation of the human being. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You uh, you make a mention, a brief mention about the curriculum of the church, and you make this this comment that we've created a powerful curriculum that supports extremely healthy child development in Mormon culture. You then say children learn values, behaviors, ways of being in the world that set them up for flourishing in adulthood. Mm. The question lies before us, you ask, can we extend this foundation of healthy development through a, throughout adulthood? And I, and I kind of get what you're saying here. We've created a curriculum for the children that supports them in the stage that they're at. Yes. But, but as of right now, we really do lack a curriculum that helps adults through this maturation process of development. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm pointing to, that, you know, from age zero to 12, you know, you uh, bring a child through the primary system, and they come out with incredible uh, knowledge of human virtue and, you know, the deep meaning to be drawn from life. They're, they're well-equipped at that point. And what I'm pointing to in the book is that, yeah, you know, adult development, it's a new science. Um, it, we, we didn't really start to look at the way the adult mind and worldview changed until, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. So we have almost 50 years of research behind us, which is the blink of an eye. But what I'm pointing to here is that, you know, for, for eons, we've known intuitively how children develop. Right. But now what I, what I see is an exciting challenge in Mormonism and throughout Christendom and throughout humanity is that we can actually, with our knowledge of how adults develop, we can actually tailor our curriculum uh, to the different stages we see in our own congregations now. Right. You know, what what would it look like if we found a way to hold doubt in a healthy context, celebrate it and, you know, really help catalyze the process of deepening understanding that can come from a healthy doubt, right? That That's new for us. That would be leading edge in our development as a culture, but certainly within grasp. And I, I personally know a lot of people who would be thrilled to show up at a place on Sundays that helps them work with their doubt in a deep way rather than, you know, maybe discourage it. Yeah. And, and I would welcome that, um, I've been asked a few times to substitute for gospel doctrine class and, and I, I'm not trying to shake people. I'm not trying to, um, cause people to have doubts, but I, I can't, I tell people all the time, I say, we have this idea in the church that there's milk before meat. And, and my throwback is, look guys, I'm lactose intolerant now. I, I can no longer just have milk. I need to have some meat. And so when I go into these lessons, I'm, I'm trying to share some deeper ideas. For instance, this Sunday, I'm going to go in and talk about perhaps the way we define church is a bigger idea. Maybe, maybe church is anybody who repents and comes unto Christ as DNC 10 talks about. And I worry that when I, when I teach these kinds of concepts that while they are in scripture and while we have some prophets, seers and revelators who expound on them, that the average member being unaware 
becomes really uncomfortable with with something being taught differently than what they've been taught in the past. I guess what I'm getting at is how how can we tackle that problem of putting in a more a more growth based, a more adult development type of curriculum without shaking a bunch of people up and having having more people struggle than than helping out. Yeah, I'm so glad you're bringing this question up at this point in the conversation. It's so important and it's it's also a theme I, I try to really carry throughout the book. Um I I refer to it as transcend and include, meaning we, you know, we grow up, we develop. We used to see the world one way, now we don't. Now we see it another way. And what happens with that kind of growth is that we look back on the previous stage and we say I can't believe I used to see the world that way. Like, how did I believe that? It's so clear to me that that's not all there is to it anymore. And we're, we're kind of in disbelief. We can actually be harsh on ourselves that, you know, we could ever be so dull as to not have noticed that before. And so uh, the tendency is, as we develop and we come into, you know, deeper insight into what, what is this gospel all about? And, you know, what does the atonement mean? Why Christianity? These deep questions. The tendency is to get impatient with others who, you know, aren't working at the same level of complexity. And that's a fascinating area of growth, right? I, I call growing up moving to the, you know, later, more complex and nuanced stages of development. And I call, uh, the ability to work with the previous stages in a, in a skillful, graceful way, growing down. And growing down, in my experience, is a lot harder than growing up to really show genuine charity towards ourselves and towards others who are just doing the best they can like we all are. That is, that is a lifelong work and one that I have so much more work to do on. But to your, if that answers your question, Bill, that, you know, we will see other members who are, let's say, you know, to use your metaphor, that they're satisfied with milk. And that brings up a certain impatience with us. Like, how can you just drink milk? Like, what about the meat? Right. And, that points us back to our own need to more deeply integrate the whole spectrum, you know, back to the spectrum of compassion. Can we have compassion towards all of it? It's so hard. And yet, you know, my experience is it's such a worthy undertaking, you know, to really practice at that. Yeah. And intellectually, I see that's where I need to get to. But I'm still in that stage where I'm kind of like half angry. You know what I mean? Oh, you and me both, right? Like okay. I, I get triggered all the time and I just have to like catch myself and laugh like, okay, you know, like <laughs> back to the drawing board. You know, I'm still integrating stages of development I passed through when I was three years old. And it, it's really a fascinating journey to look at it. <laughs> yeah. No, you you listen to people. I don't know. You're, I'm sure you're familiar with Terrell Givens or Richard Bushman. Oh, yeah. Um, guys like that tend to be really good at not not dragging anybody down from a previous stage to cause them to have a faith crisis, but also saying just the right words to try and help somebody along. And, and I'm still trying to figure out how to get there. You You talk about... And I want to begin to kind of wrap up. You you talk about on page 105 this idea that it would be better in our culture if we would share our struggles. And you say, look, you know, if somebody shares it, yeah, there is the risk that you might cause someone else to lose faith. But then you make a really strong argument that by sharing struggles, the reality is there's a much better chance that we're all going to be healthier for it. I, uh, and I want to kind of tie in this to that idea. On page 124, you begin to talk 
about leaders. And, and I think this is really maybe the one part of the book where you, you seem to really be pushing a little bit. And, and I think you do it in a really good way. I think you come off really soft and, and I think you use the right words. I, I would have been a lot harsher, I think. But let me at least read this. It says, remember that prior to gaining a development, developmental understanding, we tend to assume that others have simply missed the mark. They don't know the truth, our truth. Development shows us that maybe we are the ones who haven't had eyes to see. And then you say, church leaders have an opportunity to recognize and reinforce the healthy aspects. By the same token, they can exercise a gentle corrective influence when they sense unhealthy development arise. And then one paragraph down, you say, rather than try to silence doubt through faith-promoting rhetoric, leadership might learn to recognize and support healthy, faith-affirming doubt. They, and I love that. Faith affirming doubt. That's putting those two <laughs> sides of the coin together yeah. as if they're one healthy yeah. uh, formula if done right. Then you say they could allow it a fuller voice and trust that wisdom and in the trust what wisdom and intelligent intelligence it has to offer. Many otherwise devout Latter day Saints are leaving the church or seeking refuge in other groups due to a sense that their doubts are not welcome in our congregations. We could do more to welcome all of these individuals to worship, not just the sterilized, doubt-free versions of them. Um, And then I want to read just one more little section here. We've also seen that at the achiever and individualist stages, people may start to become more vocal in advocating for individuals and groups they perceive as marginalized. Racial minorities, women, LGBTs, to name a few. The conversation around how we can more meaningfully include all human beings in our church, I would argue, is a healthy one to have. That seems to be really the strongest part of the book where you're like, hey, I'm not going to tell you what you have to do, (laughs) but we could certainly do a lot better than we are. (laughs) Your your thoughts there on, on, on how we just as a church just... We just gonna have to go through these growing pains. We're just gonna have to make some adjustments. Yeah, well, thank you for calling me out on that, Bill. As I hear you read it to me, it's like, yeah, I am kind of throwing some elbows in there. <laughs> I, I don't mean right, to, right. I don't mean to exclusively address the leadership. I mean, to me, when we talk about what can the church do to, you know, ad- address these issues more adequately, I say that from the perspective that we are the church. You know, when we say the church, we're talking about ourselves. So I, I think leaders are in a um, an interesting position where they have real, you know, institutional power to make decisions and change policies. And, you know, we have our own kind of stewardship, you know, in our different callings and roles in the church. And, you know, for those of us who are out of the church, I feel like we've been talking about a theme kind of implicitly throughout the conversation that, um I talk about multiple stages. I, I really flesh out five specific stages in the book that cover about 95% of the developmental spectrum statistically. So the stages I really spend time on in the book are the ones that, you know, the reader will recognize in themselves. And I even spend, you know, a good amount of time on the stages that are statistically quite rare, but interesting. So I throw those in there. But there's a theme running throughout the book, which is, the different stages hold faith and doubt differently. Certain stages um, tend to identify exclusively with faith or exclusively with doubt. And, you know, as we mature, as we all develop and grow, there's a tendency to hold them more and more, like you said, Bill, as one and the same thing. So I, I look at how these stages 
tolerate uncertainty, you know, how they deal with ambiguity, how they, how they process paradox and things that just don't make sense. That's all, you know, very like, you know, deeply grounded in development, right? So, you know, coming back, that's a, that's a key theme in the book and coming back to this question about what do we do about all these people who's, who, who feel heartache over the church and, you know, feel their identities crumbling in the church and don't know if they can participate anymore, but, you know, would like to if it felt honest and, you know, had integrity to them. I would say that, you know, to just recognize, to just get a glimpse and a taste of how differently we hold our faith and our doubt, how differently we come into relationship with Mormonism, to me, that would be the first step, right? And, and from there, you know, I, I trust that the leaders will be inspired. Um, just being around my granddad a lot growing up, um, I just got a glimpse of how humble these men can be and how sincerely they're asking for guidance and, you know, are, are eager for our success and our happiness. And I, you know, I, I, I trust leadership. Not to say that I haven't been deeply hurt by leaders in the church and, uh, and I trust the membership. I trust the intelligence and the growth, the wisdom, you know, of the members, uh, who are, um, you know, advocating for the cause like you are, Bill, with, you know, your work, your beautiful work on the podcast and, you know, your listeners that we're all engaged in service in the church. And, you know, what I'm arguing is that if we have a little bit more clarity around the uniqueness, the patterning of how we make sense of all this stuff, it could make for a much more livable community, not just livable, but a growthful community, you know, where we we support each other to grow without limits. And we, you know, absolutely realize in this lifetime, you know, this uh, this incredible joy, you know, that is our birthright. Uh, as, as Mormons and as human beings. Uh, that's my hope that we start to move more fully into that vision. Awesome. Awesome. Let me ask you one last tough question and then uh, let's ask you an easy one uh, about where people can find the book and, and where your website and stuff is. The First off, let me throw a little tidbit in. In the very first uh, part of the book, you mentioned a book that you got many good ideas from, Catherine Thomas's The God Seed. I'd never heard of the book before and after reading your book, I went out and ordered that one as well and it should show up here any day, but I'm looking forward to reading it and kind of getting a feel for what you saw in that book that kind of prompted you along these lines. The, uh, the part I wanted, the last little part I wanted to read and the last tough question I wanted to ask you is on page 75. There's, uh, the challenges to the stage of achiever and you put the challenges are that the achiever can become overly analytical and reliant on the intellect, divorcing themselves from inner promptings that have previously informed and enriched their lives in crisis at this stage we may feel we may also feel inclined to react against mainstream culture in an effort to differentiate ourselves we may become strident and argumentative i just want to say that's me and <laughs> right. it, it is that's <laughs> that's too. where i'm at and that's the spot i'm trying to move beyond but yeah. then every time i jump on a facebook post and someone says something that just brushes me the wrong way then i'm jumping right back into the the dogfight again and and what I wanted to ask you, what I wanted to kind of leave off on, and I realize that you're fully admitting, hey, I'm in the same journey as you are, and I don't have all the answers. I'm just trying to provide a map that we can all kind of work through. What what does that next stage look like? I mean, um, I feel like I'm okay with nuance. I'm okay with paradoxes. I'm okay with complexity. I feel like um, I'm in the church for the long haul unless somebody tells me I have to leave. 
but I also still am really bitter and angry about the way doubters are treated and I get frustrated every single time I, as we talked about earlier, those who are marginalized, how we feel a, a need to defend them and, and to push their cause and to, to try and stand up for them. That's where I'm at. And, and I don't see that as a bad thing, but how do I get to a place where I can do all of that without being, and I'm asking this obviously, I know there's no perfect answer, but for many of the listeners who are in that same stage, how do we push through this to get to that next part where we can be like Terrell Givens and just quote Shakespeare and it fixes everything. You know what I mean? Is, <laughs> does it? Is there a, right, I don't I'm know. I'm not that, convinced I, that it does fix okay. everything, but I, but, I do but, enjoy his poetry. <laughs> right. How do we get to a place where there's more peace in our life as we deal with this rather than getting angry at every turn? Oh, man. Would that I had the formula. So I, I, I heard a question about Kathy Thomas's book, The God Seed, and then just the general question of like, wow, like, you know, that recognition – of yours where you said, that's me. Let me come back to that in a moment. Um, Kathy Thomas is a friend of mine. We've been friends since I moved back from China a few years ago. And, um, you know, she's been fascinated with, you know, the, the field of adult development and, you know, what implications that has for sainthood and Mormonism. Um, so, uh, you know, Kathy, it's interesting, you know, we were cooking up our books at the same time and Kathy is just a prolific scriptural scholar. And, you know, so she came out with this book, The God Seed, and it's, if you read it, it's, it's, uh, very scriptural. And I read it and it's amazing. And I thought, you know what, like with my background, I want to provide something with a much more, uh, you know, rich and nuanced, uh, framework of adult development, because that's my specialty and my background. So I'd say they're complementary books, but quite different, you know, in the way they approach the subject. So uh, Kathy's been a dear friend of mine, and it was after a couple of years of her saying, Tom, you sit down and you write a book. <laughs> right? I had no intention to do so, but, you know, somehow, uh, you know, the advice got in there and I finally did it. Um, as far as your next question, I love what you said. You know, when you say you, you read you know, about the stages of adult development and you say, that's me. You see yourself in the description. And that is, that is the power of this field of study. It's, you know, we, we use words to describe it, right? Because what else will we use but words to, you know, communicate these ideas? But really adult development, it's not a bunch of concepts. It's not some theoretical framework. It's actually knowing the territory in yourself. It's actually awakening to the fact of, oh, my goodness, like I do that. That's how I make sense of the world. That's how I make meaning. You know, and what if I didn't just make meaning like that all the time? It's the study of adult development, the realization of this practice, it jolts us out of our world. It's, it's an incredible experience to be jolted out of the world you took for granted, you took to be true one moment, and all of a sudden you realize something else is possible. I mean, it's just, it's, it's growth itself, that process of realizing that there's something beyond, there's something more beautiful just beyond, right? And, and you point to it beautifully, your question, you know, uh, what do I do to get beyond this place of there still is that critic in me and there still is a harshness towards the way our culture treats doubters. You know, I, I would say that the answer to that question is in the very asking. The moment you ask the question, how do I grow beyond this? you've already realized that there's a place beyond it. And, and that's what's gorgeous about development. It's this map. It's this map of a territory that says, you know what? You're not lost. You don't have to stop right here. 
and panic, you can actually take another step forward into the dark and you will be held through that process. And, and the self that you will become in that process is more beautiful than anything you could imagine. Amen. Thank you. I, I, I think this book is a godsend. It's just the perfect moment. It's just, it's finally time for somebody to hit this topic. I know kind of in the fringes of Mormonism, there's lots of discussion about Fowler's stages of faith and, and how comforting it is, but nobody's really put it into Mormon terms and used our vernacular to try and explain how these stages work and also to make it in a simple way. I know I once tried to tackle Fowler's book and I had to give up about a third of the way through it because it was just too, it was too, um, too big, too, it was too, too much for, uh, for a layman like me. And I, I felt like your book was such an easy read, but yet it was so deep. It really hit on all the, the, the aspects of faith transitions that we each need to be aware of so that we can move through this in a healthier way. Thomas Worthland McConkie, your book is absolutely uh, important and valuable and helpful. Where can people find it and what other things uh, can people go to? Is there a website, a place people can go to, to know more about you and this idea? Uh, where else can people go and where can they get the book? Yeah, there is. And thank you so much for the praises, Bill. It, it means a lot to me. And I, I really do hope that it, you know, the book can be a tool to help people find a little more space for themselves. You know, I'm excited by that possibility. It's easy to find us where we've got a website. It's called mormonstages.com talking about the stages of development, mormonstages.com. You can buy a book there, uh, watch a few videos, learn a little bit about the stages. Uh, get on our mailer to hear about events and upcoming talks and presentations. So I just encourage people to start there. Just again, appreciate all that you're doing. I hope that you'll continue to be a voice. I look forward to whatever projects, other things you do over the upcoming years, but uh, just so glad that uh, you are a new face in Mormonism and the things you're talking about are crucial to helping people work through these transitions without walking away and and not exploring uh, the possibilities of, of making it work, but in a new way. Uh, Thomas Worthland McConkie, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure. By the time I recognized my life By the time I realized I lied And I'm not special And you took All my words as true When you knew I never had a clue Cause I'm not special So listen to your heart and mind and soul Listen to your heart and mind and soul Am I the only one who knows we don't know it? Am I the only one who knows we don't know it? Am I the only one who knows we don't know shit? So think about 50 years ago And all those things, those 